so I would uh, I would be happy to preach for you anytime I'm available in the evening. And so um, John was planning to preach this morning, and I and he is he may he's scheduled for several other evenings when it's when we have somebody in the morning, but we don't have somebody planned for the evening. So for instance, uh, I announced Daniel Howe, who's speaking at a at a at an event coming up, who will be preaching for us May 7th in the morning, and I think Chris Moulton will preach in the evening. Um, so the young adult group is meeting this week, about a block and a half from our new church building, and Brian Snyder is going to be speaking at the youth retreat that's coming up, and he will also be preaching for us on April 30th. So I wanted you to uh, take note of that. Um, we have this ordination and installation service uh, we will have an, uh, an edict about that, but we'll have some refreshments after that, and we may have some food for the, for the visiting pastors. That's what we normally do. We send out an invitation to all the elders in the presbytery, and, and a, a number of them show up um, to help lay hands on and install our officers. It's really kind of a moving thing. Um, Andrew Fortenberry, you may have noticed that he is coming to preach, and you may know, who on earth is he? And uh, we will have some more information. I'm not going to tell you all about him, but um, some of the members of the um, selection committee are working at reaching out to some of the to the pastors that we don't know, and getting some biographical information about them that we can push out to you before they come to preach, so that you'll know them. And uh, this is not any, you know, formal part of any selection process. It's part of filling our pulpit and letting you know who's going to be in our pulpit and a little bit about them before they show up here. So that, that will be, you can look forward to that coming up. All right, John, have I killed enough of your time yet? Okay. Um, I'll give this over to you so you can lead us in worship. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Keith. I do uh, greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just take a couple of moments in uh, quiet uh, prayer to prepare our hearts for worship. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 96. Psalm 96 is a beautiful psalm that extols the glory of God, particularly his glory in sanctification and uh, salvation. Hear now this call to worship. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Let's stand together and respond by singing Psalm 96, Selection A. Sure. 
Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we, we do indeed want to declare your glory among the nations and your marvelous works among all the peoples, for you are worthy of all praise, for you are the maker of heaven and earth. And Father, we are delighted to come this Lord's Day to worship you, to fellowship together, to pray, to lift our concerns before you, and especially, Father, to hear from your word. Father, I do uh, uh, pray now, or we do pray together, the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please be seated. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Ezekiel. I'll be reading from the 21st chapter of Ezekiel, verses 18 to 32. And just as a reminder and maybe just as a little bit of information for anybody that might be visiting or is new here, um, we do something that's called uh, a practice called Lectio Continua, which simply means in Latin, continuous reading. Uh, we basically just read through the entire Old Testament and New Testament so that those passages that are a little bit more obscure uh, at least get touched on at some point in the life of the church. So we're continuing that practice, and uh, we happen to be in Ezekiel right now. So let me give you just a little bit of background on what we're reading. Ezekiel has been taken into exile uh, with a great many fellow Jews by Nebuchadnezzar, and this occurred in about 597 B.C. So he's actually prophesying from Babylon. He's predicting the fall of Jerusalem. In fact, for many, many chapters, he has predicted the fall of Jerusalem which will happen in about 586 B.C. The Israelites are continuing. He's, he's, they've been judged at multiple times. They've, uh, Jerusalem has already been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't destroy the city. He simply took the, the exiles into uh, Babylon. So there's already been quite a bit of judgment, but the people are not learning. They continue in their practices of idolatry. They continue to um, make alliances with foreign nations like Egypt and the Ammonites. And God is uh, just declaring that he's going to judge them for this through Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the, um, the, you'll notice in, in some language in here, too, that the Ammonites are also being judged. A couple of reasons for that. One of the main ones is they have dealt treacherously with the Israelites, and God is going to judge them for that, again, using Nebuchadnezzar. And then you'll see some kind of strange things like shaking the arrows and looking at the liver, kind of odd language. And what that's referring to is just these divination practices that the Babylonians use to try to figure out how they should go about their conquering, you know. Uh, sort of like us flipping a coin type of thing, just a superstitious practice. But you'll notice that, so I thought I'd mention it. Um, with that said, um, let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's holy and infallible word. This is Ezekiel, chapter 21, 18 to 32. The word of the Lord came to me again 
as for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land. Both of them shall come from the, excuse me, and make a signpost. Make it at the head of the way to a city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Reba of the Ammonites and to Judah and to Jerusalem the fortified. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting way of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the teraphim, he looks at the liver, into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem, to set battering rams, to open the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up mounds, to build siege towers, but to them it will seem like a false divination. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings their guilt to remembrance that they may be taken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your guilt to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your deeds your sins appear, because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. And, oh, and you, O oh profane wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach, say, a sword, a sword is drawn for the slaughter. It is polished to consume and to flash like lightning. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you, to place you on the necks of the profane wicked, whose day has come, the time of their final punishment. Return it to its sheath in the place where you were created, in the land of your origin. I will judge you, and I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men, skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall be no more remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Turn with me now to our New Testament reading, which is found in Ephesians. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. This is a um, very well-known passage in Scripture. Um, but I do want to give you just a little bit of background. We're starting a new book or a new epistle. Um, this was written by Paul while he was in prison. And you may remember that Paul actually ministered in Ephesus for about three years. So that's one of the longest periods of time he was in any one place uh, that we can tell from, uh, from Acts and from his, his letters. So he's writing to a congregation that he knows extremely well. And the letter to the Ephesians is somewhat unique among Paul's letters because he's not, he's not answering questions that he obviously received from the congregation, and he's not dealing with any obvious, um, uh, any obvious uh, uh, heresy or controversy that might have sprung up in the, in the um, 
congregation. So um, that fact alone provides us this opportunity to get, a, to get an amazing look at the eternal counsel of God regarding our calling and our election and uh, our salvation through Jesus. This passage in particular emphasizes God's sovereignty and initiative when it comes to our salvation, and it stresses our union with Christ. Notice uh, that while I'm reading how many times the benefits of our salvation are said to be in him, and uh, you'll, you'll see what I mean. So with that, let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have also obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. We'll end our reading there. Um, please take up your, your psalters and we will sing together Psalm 22, Selection A. Let's remain seated and if the deacons could come forward for the offering, let's together sing Psalm 22, Selection A.
please stand and join me and help me as we uh, come together before the Lord of glory together in, uh, in prayer. Let's pray. We, ad- we adore you, Majestic Father. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything in the heavens and earth is yours. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Around you is awesome majesty. You, Lord, reign. You are clothed with majesty. You have clothed and girded yourself. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. Send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. We confess our great sinfulness. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. Lord, we also do not always perceive your great majesty, even when we are surrounded by it and immersed in it. How hard our hearts can be toward you. We bring thanks to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave your life so that we could, you could be our mediator with our Father. That you gave your life as the atoning sacrifice for each of our sins. That you have sought and saved your people by sovereign grace. That you continue to save and to call people everywhere to repent, to believe in you and have eternal life. We request the work of the Holy Spirit to pour God's love into our hearts, to help us know that our adoption is more than a doctrine, to help us know that we really are your sons and daughters. Pour out your Spirit to give us full assurance that we have been pardoned and that we are reconciled to you. In response, Lord Jesus, to your abundant love, shown to us by your Spirit. Help us to love. Help us to love you and help us to love one another, knowing that you are patient with us. Help us to be patient with each other, knowing that you came to earth and humbled your glorious self for us. Help us to be humble and not proud. Help us to honor you and each other. Help us to seek the good of each other over our own good. Keep us from being angry with each other and even in our sin and sorrow with you, knowing that you have put our sin as far away, as far as the east is from the west. Help us keep no wrongs, no record of the wrongs that we experience from each other. Help us to delight in the truth as you are the truth, knowing that our Heavenly Father has given us his Son and covers us in his love. Help us to protect each other, trust each other, Hope in each other and persevere in our love for you and each other. Lord, we come before you together this morning, thanking you for many years, for your faithfulness for many years in Denison, Kansas, and in the RP Church there. We praise you, Lord, and Savior with them for the many blessings you have brought to them, for babies born and baptized, and for the baptism of an older covenant child. We thank you, God, for Caleb Allen's faithful teaching and preaching. 
We thank you for your blessings and that they enjoy your blessings. Our prayer is that your spirit will work in each of the hearts of the saints in and around Denison, leading them to serve you in all that they do. Lord, we also lift up Jim and Beth Cunningham to you. Our hearts are tender toward this brother and sister, by whom you have blessed Springs Reformed for many years. Praise you, Lord, for how well they are doing by your mercy to them. We pray by your spirit that they would be thankful to you for every day given to them. We pray that very much for ourselves as well. Lord, please show your mercy to Jim by restoring his good balance and healing his neuropathy. Cause Beth's arm to completely heal. Lord, we pray that you would enable them to live independently in the wonderful house that you have given them, that they would stay there for many years enjoying that location. Lord, we have prayed for Nick to come to Christ for many years. We have poured out our hearts for him with Beth and Jim. Please hear our prayer and bring joy to this family by regenerating his heart and giving him saving faith. Call him irresistibly to yourself. Lord, we lift up Bill Walker. Lord, we pray that you would give him patience as he gains strength in the next weeks and months. Lord, help him to do the things he needs to do to heal completely. Lord, we pray that you will give him renewed and increased strength and stamina in the stamina in the coming months that he might enjoy the benefits of this surgery. Minimize the side effects that distract from the joy of a healthier heart. Lord Jesus, I pray for this congregation. Help us to be grateful to you and patient with each other as we navigate the work and decisions that are being made and will be made relative to making our new building suitable for ministry that you have given us. Help us to have a great witness in that location. We lift up these things to you in grateful adoration. In your son's holy name, amen. And we will sing as we prepare our hearts, and as the Lord prepares our hearts from Psalm 131a.
Uh, you may be seated. So just a couple of things that might be helpful. I will be reading from Isaiah chapter 60 a little later. So if you want to find a, something to mark your Bible there, I will read from there. I'm all, I've also got a number of passages that I'm going to read from uh, Romans. So if you want to put a marker in Romans 6, uh, I'll be coming to that quite a bit. Um, but I wanted to give you some idea where I'm heading. Um, the last time I preached was in October, and I preached on this same passage from Isaiah, chapter 60. Uh, but you may recall, I did not really cover everything that I intended to get to, uh, which I said at the time was the case. I made some brief comments about the chapter as a whole, and then I focused on verse 17 and this wonderful phrase, I will make your overseer's peace in your taskmaster's righteousness. But while I spent a fair amount of time looking at the way in which peace has been made to be our overseer, I didn't really comment on the second half of the phrase, which is our taskmaster is righteousness. So that's the part of the phrase that I want to focus on today. Uh, I think a little review would be helpful before I get to that. The 60th chapter of Isaiah, which was written about 700 years before Jesus was born, is describing a future kingdom. In fact, the final 10, chapter of, 10 chapters of Isaiah talk mostly about a distant future kingdom. And it's interesting, Isaiah doesn't really call it a kingdom, but Jesus does. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven all the time. Gerhardus Voss tells us this concerning the kingdom of God. According to the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first message of Jesus at the opening of his public ministry concerned the kingdom of God. And it was a message used before him by John the Baptist. Listen to just a few passages from Matthew where this kingdom that Isaiah prophesied about is referred to. I'll be turning to uh, Matthew chapter 3. Listen to, to the first couple of verses in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. And then just one chapter later, in chapter 4, verse 17, we read this. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the following chapter is chapter 5, and uh, that's where the Sermon on the Mount begins. And notice how Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount. He says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A little later in that same uh, chapter, Jesus gives us more information about the kingdom of heaven. He says, For I tell you, unless you're, this is uh, verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And then just consider this, that Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, which is still part of the Sermon on the Mount. And he teaches us to pray this way. He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this kingdom that Isaiah prophesies about really commences with the earthly ministry of Jesus. And it's the age that we live in now. It's the church age, or sometimes called the church age. And it'll continue in its present form until Jesus comes back again. So with that in mind, let me read Isaiah chapter 60. And keep in mind that our focus is really on this verse 17, but it's talking about the whole church age, mostly. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will, will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The nations shall come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. You shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nabaoth shall minister to you. They shall, come upon, they shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut. The people may, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. 
You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and in your days of mourning, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous, they shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten it. So this portion of Isaiah is just loaded with prophetic details about the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel. Some of the details that we just read are actually about the final kingdom. Things like the sun no more going down and the moon being withdrawn and so forth. And actually, if you think about it, you can find those exact passages in Revelation. But most of what, what uh, Isaiah is talking about here has to do with the, the church age or the kingdom in which we live in now. And then we get these wonderful little details. Um, I talked about a couple of them last time about the, the doves flying to their tower, uh, which looks like the domesticated birds of the the uh, children of the kingdom who, who belong to the church. But we, we see this uh, wonderful phrase, our overseer is peace and our taskmaster is righteousness. As I mentioned in October, when Isaiah says that peace will be our overseer, he's not suggesting that the Christian life is always peaceful. In fact, I think most often it becomes less peaceful when you become a Christian. There's more hardship. There's more um, attacks, so to speak. He's talking there about the objective reality of our new relationship with the Father. He's talking about our justification. We are now and will forever be at peace with God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. In justification, Jesus takes our sins and pays the penalty for all of them on the cross. And then he imputes or credits his perfect righteousness to us. So to use me as an example, Jesus is punished for all of my wrongdoing, which takes all of my sins and eliminates them from my account, so to speak. And then he goes to that same account, which keeps track of my law keeping. And seeing that the account is zero, he credits me with a lifetime of perfect living a lifetime of perfect love for God, a, perfect, a lifetime of uh, perfect love for God with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength, and perfect love for my neighbor. And it's as if he tells me, when you get to heaven and they pull up your account, what they'll find is no sins. There's no sins recorded in there. Not one blemish. Not one thing against God's law. I've taken all of those out of your account, and I've paid for them. But I've also added to your account a lifetime of perfect living. And that's what they'll see when they open your account in heaven. Romans 5, 1 and 2 tell us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace 
in which we stand, that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So our overseer is peace. But what about our taskmaster? What does that phrase mean? Our taskmaster is righteousness. I think it's helpful at this point to remember that we're still talking about a kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom that Isaiah prophesied about, the kingdom for which John the Baptist was the final herald. We're talking about the kingdom that Jesus taught us to pray for with these words, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're talking about a kingdom of righteousness. And the righteousness of this kingdom has been bestowed on the children of the kingdom like a royal gift. Listen to this wonderful explanation of this gift by Gerhardus Voss. And this is, uh, this is in your bulletin if you would like to follow along while I read. But listen to how Voss describes this. He says, as a matter of fact, the principle of the Pauline doctrine and that of Jesus thus appear identical. The difference lies in two things. Jesus treats the entire gift as an undifferentiated unit. Whereas Paul has learned to distinguish between the objective righteousness, which becomes ours through imputation, and the subjective kind, which becomes ours through the inworking of the Spirit. But at bottom, both are one as the gift of God. And according to Paul, the latter comes as the fruit of the former. In that quote, when Paul says, excuse me, in that quote when uh, Voss says, Paul has learned to distinguish between the objective righteousness, which becomes ours through imputation. He's talking about what Paul does in the first five chapters of Romans which has developed this grand theme of justification by faith, which reconciles us to God and secures our peace with him. And then when he refers to the subjective kind of righteousness that becomes ours through the inworking of the Spirit, he's referring to our sanctification, which is the theme of the sixth chapter of Romans, as Paul develops and explains the sanctifying effect of our new relationship with God. Now that we're reconciled to God, we begin to, to uh, desire righteousness. We begin to want to be righteous. We see that it's missing in us, but we do truly want to be righteous. We, we, um, we're like the psalmist that says, I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. He, also, he goes on to say, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Why does he speak like that? Because he desires the righteousness that he doesn't see in himself. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul repeatedly makes the point that we are no longer slaves of sin. Rather, we are becoming slaves of righteousness. Listen to these several passages from the chapter 6 of Romans. This is verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
Verse 11 follows with, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verses 13 and 14 continue the theme, but with this reminder that our sanctification is just as grounded in the gospel as is our justification. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here's the gospel. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Why will sin not have dominion over you? Because you are not judged by God's law. Rather, you are under God's grace and you are seen in light of your union with Jesus. So just a couple of thoughts I want to be sure to make. Even though we are no longer enslaved to sin, our flesh still struggles with sin. And it truly is a battle. And we all know that. Experientially, we know that. In verse 12 of chapter 6, Paul writes, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. That sentence begins with an imperative or a command. It says, let not sin reign. The command it accordingly. The picture is almost like a foreign army lining up against you in order to overcome or subdue you, really to conquer you. And we've got to be prepared for battle. In Ephesians, Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But our assurance of victory is given just a few verses later in the form of an indicative. And an indicative is just a statement of fact. This is just something that's true. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And between those two verses, Paul gives us our marching orders as children of the kingdom. He says this. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Jesus gives us two short parables that show just how special and valuable the kingdom of heaven is. Just how much someone would give up if they really wrapped their brain around the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Listen to three short verses from Matthew. This is Matthew 13. I'll be reading 44 through, through 46. And Jesus gives us in rapid fashion here, This is what the kingdom of God is worth. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. I read a uh, book recently about a woman who who gave up everything for the kingdom. And this woman was already 
in many ways, a princess in her own kingdom. The book is called Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Nayeri, who is this woman's son. And it's an amazing true story about his family that, fed, that fled from Iran and found their way to Oklahoma, all because his mother became a Christian. The family was extremely well off. They lived in a beautiful house with acres of Persian countryside. They had jewels in their rugs and wonderful food and servants. They were surrounded by family, and they were pretty much treated like royalty. Daniel's mother was a medical doctor, and his father was a dentist. And they are both something called a Syed, which means that they're considered to be directly from the line of the, prof of the Prophet Muhammad, which pretty much puts them at the top of the religious food chain in Iran. Daniel's sister becomes a Christian as a young girl, which horrifies the family. But Daniel's mother, who is actually a scholar of the Koran, decides to read the Bible in order to understand her daughter better, and then she actually becomes a Christian herself. Listen to this account from the perspective of 12-year-old Daniel to explain his mother's conversion to Christianity. My mom was a Syed from the bloodline of the prophet, which you know about now. In Iran, if you convert from Islam to Christianity or Judaism, it's a capital crime. That means if they find you guilty in religious court, they kill you. When my sister walked out of her room and said she'd met Jesus, my mom knew all that. And here's the part that gets hard to believe. Seema, my mom, read about him and became a Christian too. Not just a regular one who keeps it in their pocket. She fell in love. She wanted everybody to have what she had, to be free, to realize that in other religions you have rules and codes and obligations to follow, to earn good things. But all you had to do with Jesus was believe he was the one who died for you. And she believed. When I tell this story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up to that point, I've told them about the house with the birds in the walls, all the villages my grandfather owned, all the gold, my mom's own medical practice, all the amazing things she had that we don't have anymore because she became a Christian. All the money she gave up, so we're poor now. But I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? <clears throat> so I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with a begging hope that they'll hear her, and she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? <clears throat> it's true. And it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs of Jalfa and maybe even your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him 
and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, um, we are struck by your word. We are so grateful for the salvation that you have poured out upon the earth for your uh, tremendous love for, for your creation and for your people that you would send your only son to die for us. Father, give us hearts and eyes that can see that. And Father, I do pray that you would continue your work of salvation and sanctification in each one of us. And Father, we thank you for this day and this chance to worship you. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's turn together to uh, Psalm 63a and uh, let this be our response to the word. Psalm 63a. Hear now this blessing from 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Uh, Yeah, good idea. Let's, um, 11, yeah. Let's start, uh, let's start second hour in, 
in 25 minutes at uh, 12 o'clock or 11 o'clock. 